Yeah, I really liked when he talked about some of the African-Americans in the town, like their history, mm-hmm. like people from history. Like, I found that really fascinating. Like, he talks about Nellie Jackson. I was, like, so into that story. I just thought that was so interesting. You know, it's like she owned a brothel, but she, like, gave money to the church. Yeah. She was, like, super involved in the community. And, like, everybody was, like, like, they knew. Like, you have all these people who, you know, go to the brothel. And it's almost kind of like this, you know, like, what is that called? I We talked about it in class the one day. It's, like... Oh, like a coming of age. Oh, yeah. You know, like that's just like everyone's been to, you know, like see Nellie Jackson, Mm. you know, and it's like just this whole like community is banded around her, even though she was a black woman, Mm -hmm. you know, but then I was super sad when they talked about how she died. Like that made me really sad. And then they said she spied on the, you know, KKK. She like helped. Yeah. You know. Like, yeah, that's badass. Yeah. Sorry, right, I don't so, know if I'm allowed to say that, but that is badass. Like, refresh me what happened with the Ku Klux Klan again. Well, he talked about how because she had all of these men mm-hmm. who came into, you know, the yeah. brothel. Yeah, and she like, had her girls yes. talking about, yeah, the because Ku Klux when you Klan make them members, happy, yeah. they're willing to talk, you know, and even know it was run, you know, by her, a black woman, like, because it was such a, like, integral part of the town, like, it was one of those, like, things where I guess even racist guys didn't care. That was just, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and he talks about it in this part of the book, too, how there's almost, like, this taboo ideal of, you know, racist KKK members who want to sleep with Those are African American. That's a whole can of worms. The, I it's feel a like whole, there yeah. are so many layers to it that we could get into, but yeah. it's just no. We're gonna yeah, it's a bizarre thing to try to unpack. <laughs> it really is. But he talks yeah. about that in this part of the book because you know that's why like they were willing to go there, mm-hmm. but because they would go and they would talk to the girls, she was able to like get all this information, and then she would give it over to like the FBI just and the people. Awesome. I know yeah. that's so cool. It's just like taking power into your own hands that's that's like creating your own power and just being like this is what i'm gonna do so like here it is mm-hmm. I, I love it but then i was like super like i literally had to take like a break from reading when they talked about like how she died mm-hmm. it was said, really, it really sucked too because like it was all because one patron had a problem with an incredible, like, just a reasonable rule she had. No drunks inside of her brothel. Yeah. And he was just like, well, why should I listen to a black woman tell me what to do? I want to go in there and, you know, do whatever I want, intoxicated if I want to. Yeah. And they both just went down. I just thought I just felt was... like that was such, such an abrupt end for someone who had such a... An important role in the town. Yeah, such a, just a horrible demise. And, like, if it would have happened, like, any other way. But. Yeah, we won't spoil it. Read the book. But it's sad. And they talk about how the town afterwards was, like. Yeah. Upset. Like, you know, it's, like, she was a huge part of the community. So, but I, I just thought that was really interesting mm-hmm. when he talked about some of the different people. And he talked about, like, the, I did not know how Natchez was considered, like, 
the worst stop on like the Mississippi River. Yeah, even worse than like New Orleans. Yeah, I believe yeah. It was he had called said. The, the, the Little Easy. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. The instead easy. of the Big Easy. Yeah. yeah, and they called it the like the Under the Hill, and uh, it was like where yeah, like the boatmen yeah. would come, and like there was always you know like murder and sex and yeah. drinking, mm-hmm. and bar like, brawls too, yeah. just breaking out in Which the middle is of nowhere. Kind of wild to, for like. That's another thing that's just, like, swept under the rug with the town. They focus just on the antebellum period and how great that was for the town. Well, I think that's because, like we said, that's where they've learned where the money comes from. You know, they talk about, like, after they started in the 30s, -hmm. like you were talking about, they, like, had this huge influx of people because Gone with the Wind came out. Yeah. And, you know, like, I remember my grandma, like, that was, you know, one of the things, like, she watched when I was a kid. Like, I've seen it, you know, and I can see where that is, like... It's like a whole... I mean, it's not accurate at all. It's super... There's many problems with that movie that we won't go into. But it's like where it's it's almost like this, yeah, glorification of like, oh, there's Tara and I'm wearing these big, beautiful dresses. It's like romanticized. Yes. It's very, you know, and like, oh, like our poor men went off to war and, you know, like all of these things. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, yes, the, you know, slaves in the movie, the Mammy character and all of this. And like I said, whole other issues with, yes. but it is, and it's very much, you know, like, well, they're a part of Scarlett's family and so I can totally see where like at that time that movie came out and people were like I want to go see this you know what I mean mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. like this is actually a real life like fantasy yeah. like that actually it took place you know because that's what Gone with the Wind makes it out to be yeah. you know it's like you all the hardship you witness is gone through by Scarlett you know you don't see the hardship of the actual reality yeah. you know of right. the south you see or white you know hardship yes yeah. you know you don't see the enslaved <laughs> and all of that like I said we won't go into that but yeah. that's a whole other podcast <laughs> we could do um but yeah and i i thought it was really interesting he talks about like dna and yes. how everything in the town has like spanned from you know like different relationships um, and, like, different families being connected. You know, he, they talk about how a lot of the white elite families are very, like, integrated. And didn't he also say that African-Americans can name, like, just a, a, a random white person who said, yeah, that, that person has ancestors that yes. um, introduced white blood into my bloodline. Into Yes. Well, because he talks about, you know, these awful relationships. I don't even want to call them relationships. But where, you know, it's like you have plantation owners sleeping with black slaves, Mm -hmm. you know. and There was the one plantation owner who had run away with his slave. Yes. Yeah, and how we basically know next to nothing about what her thoughts on the matter were. Yeah, it was... um, uh, I can't remember his name. But he he owned um, Ibrahima, who we're going to talk about later. Oh, Thomas, Thomas Foster. 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 Thank yes. you. Yes, it was his son. Yes. That, oh, you're that, right. Yeah. And then Ibrahim he like left daughter. his wife and his mm-hmm. kids and everything and yeah. like ran off. Yep. And with, he just he just kept having this back and forth too. Do I go to go back to my white wife or do I run away with my black slave? Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's kind of like you know like what was going on in his mind to I guess 
he didn't want to go back to his white wife who was holding him accountable for being an infidel. And also, like, he kind I guess it was part of the power that he had over um, the slave that he eventually ran away with. I, th- and, uh, I thought it was really messed up, too, and he talks about, like, the whole dynamic between white plantation owners, the men sleeping with, you know, mm-hmm. enslaved women, mm-hmm. and then the white women sleeping with the enslaved yeah. men, almost in, like, a, a vengeful, you know, like, well, if you're going to do it, then I'm going to do it. And mm-hmm. that's just so messed up for the black people that were unfortunately caught up in these yeah these relationships the being forced sometimes being coerced well and that's to the follow the wishes of their white masters and mistresses mm-hmm. all because they had this they had either a vengeful motivation or an exploitative motivation when well, he says that you know it's like they really didn't have any other option Mm -hmm. because like I think he talks about how with like the women and the men sometimes like the white women and the African-American men they would literally be like you know well if you don't I'm gonna say that you you know tried yeah or I'm gonna say that you did this and it's the same with like the you know the black women and the plantation owners it's like he talks a lot about like these different families and how there's a lot of connections between, you know, black members of the community and these white elite families. And he talks about how some of the relationships, you know, actually seem like they might have been loving or they gave, you know, their freedom, you know, when they died or in their will or, you know, their children were, you know, freed because of this relationship or whatever. But it's like that is not still a consensual relationship. Right. You know, that's one of those There's things. an inherent power balance. Exactly. You know, even if it seemed like, you know, to some of these people now, you know, it's like, well, my ancestors, you know, they were in love and that was a, a good relationship and this and that. It's like, but you don't know that. You know, like, you did the, was that something that the enslaved people really wanted? Because you're never going to know that, mm-hmm. you know, because, yeah, they didn't have any option, whether it was forced or consensual. Even if it was consensual, it wasn't 100% consensual. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, because they were your slaves. Yeah. That's not. And it's also with the understanding, well, if I just go along with whatever my master or mistress wants for me, that means I can kind of get myself out of being abused a little bit, kind of enjoy a little bit more benefits than I would than a slave who doesn't have this relationship with the master or mistress. Yeah. Well, and I thought it was really like he talked about how interracial relationships were actually like okay in this town up until like the 1930s and the 1940s. He said there was, like, an influx of white people who were, like, more living in poverty, not in these antebellum homes that came in because of, like, the Great Depression and different situations. And then you have the rise of the KKK. I mean, the KKK came before that. Right. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the numbers really, like, pick up because of this influx of new, like, white people. And then you have, you know, the civil rights. And, like, that was, like, when it became really taboo. You know, like, oh, well, yeah, now white and blacks are not allowed to be together Mm -hmm. in a relationship to where before it was like, oh, like, it's fine. You know, we might not talk about it, but we know. Right. 
Right. Yeah, it's so weird how that can be in flux. You know, sometimes some eras, some periods in time where it was okay, it was kind of expected, but under wraps. But now it's just like, yeah, we can't be doing this. Like the Ku Klux Klan rose up and it was like, we have to keep the bloodline pure, mm-hmm. quote unquote. So we can't. And, you know, I mean, they were literally going out and brutalizing people and showing uh, other white people like, yeah, these people are less than nothing and they deserve to be done violence unto. So why would you be associated with one of them in whatever way and risk your own neck? Yeah. You know, because if you get associated with them, then you start sympathizing with them, I believe, is what the KKK would um, classify some white people um, who were trying to fight for the for the rights of these people yeah i there's actually in danger right there's actually a quote um on the first page of chapter 13 um that says by tracing paternal ancestry through wide dna geneticists have found that a third of african-american men today are directly descended from a white male ancestor who fathered a mulatto child in the slavery era era and then it adds most probably from rape or coerced sexuality um, mm-hmm. which, and then, um, the average African-American is actually 22% European, which is, uh, for me, unexpected. But now that I think about it, kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it is one of those things that, again, like we were talking about earlier, you know, it's not something that is really talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, these different, like, relationship dynamics and, you know, rape and all of these terrible things. It's like, I feel like in school, you talk about slavery and it's just like, oh, well, you know, the plantation owners owned slaves and they whipped them and they worked out in the fields. Yeah, it was black and it was white. And they didn't have anything and that was a bit, like, they don't tell you all of these other atrocities. Right. You know, they don't talk about it. So... Sorry, everybody. It's okay. I'm trying to get a donut. <laughs> Open the donut. Do it. Um, We're not sweet treats for nothing. Right. We're not sweet reads for nothing. <laughs> but and we're talking about, like, the civil rights era, I really enjoyed when he talked about the deacons for defense. Mm-hmm. I, again, with, like, school and stuff you learn, like, it's, I did not know that was a no. thing. You know, like, I feel like, yeah, you hear a lot about the peaceful protest and that kind of stuff. And this was like a group that, you know, came together in this town and basically we're like, no, we're going to arm ourselves and we are going to fight back. Yeah, uh, this is at the beginning of chapter 17. Um, I believe that the author was talking to, let's see, someone Terrell, William Terrell, genial editor and publisher of the Bluff City Post, the local African-American newspaper, and he says about the deacons of defense, the Klan had a bully mentality, and the deacons understood that. The best way to deal with a bully is to stand up to him, and if he's armed, you'd better be armed too. Like, yeah, like, because, like, I mean, you were in danger um, in the safety of your home. You were in danger walking down the street. You were in danger just for existing. So to fight that, yes, they did kind of have to take up arms to defend themselves. That's what I love about college, that you don't really learn the nitty gritty until you get to college. I know. Yeah. 
I was just telling somebody that the other day. Yeah. And, like, that's the perfect, like, example with, like, this kind of topic. Mm -hmm. Because it was not until I got to college and started taking different history classes and, you know, took an underground railroad class, Mm -hmm. all these different classes. And it's just, yeah, like, it's stuff that is all just not talked about. It's like slavery existed and it was bad. On to the 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 next... Yes. white man that did this thing for uh-huh. well it's like yeah. you know they talk like you were talking about the KKK like the silver dollar group never heard of that mm-hmm. you know no. so that was basically a super severe like subgroup of the KKK who did not think that the KKK was doing enough and they were not harsh enough mm-hmm. and so they were like a thousand times worse which I can't even imagine there, um, he was talking to James Stokes, a deacon of defense person, um, and he was talking about how most of the members of the deacons of defense were coming from the army, um, and you know they had that training that they could pull on so that they could defend themselves and their loved ones. And um, he was saying um, they had never really seen much combat, and the Klan didn't know that most of the deacons of defense coming from the army didn't see much combat. Um, the Klan and also thought that all of the deacons were combat veterans and sharpshooters, and that's exactly what we wanted them to think. The truth is that about 40% of us were from the Army. The rest were older men who could care less about living or dying and knew how to shoot from hunting. Most of us had been to jail, and I wasn't afraid of anything, probably didn't have the sense. Mm-hmm. I also appreciated the fact that Stokes wouldn't tell him how many members there were. Yeah. And, like, made the comment about how they still... We're meeting basically, mm-hmm. like that. There was still a group, and there, there is yet again another example of sweeping Black history under the rug. They thought that the deacons, de- deacons of defense, were gone for good, but it's like no, <laughs> they've always been here. They've always been meeting each other. They're still trying to keep um, Black history alive with themselves and not trying to forget about it. Yeah, about well, what they had been through, especially for the civil rights era. Yeah, well, I think it's just because they figured, well, the KKK disbanded. Which, I mean, did they? Mm. I don't know. Uh, no. Right. You know, I I could argue that they did not, but, no. you know, so, yeah, like, why would they, you know? I think it, like, it just, yet again, like, they just want to oversimplify history so that we don't ask the hard questions. Right. We, they don't want people really looking at and, you know, lifting the rug and seeing all the crime underneath. They just want to see the pretty rug on top. Right. So, like, why would the deacons of defense retire? Like, there's right. still needed, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, like, they talk about how some of the people in this town learn about, you know, some of these things and, like, in the civil rights movement and uh, talks about what, it was like a committee they were doing for something um and they were talking about like civil rights and the committee just could not believe everything about like the parchment ordeal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then like basically commu- like black community members came in and were like i oh, know this happened this mm-hmm. is a thing mm-hmm. and then the town like issued an apology and had, like, a monument put up. Yeah, and didn't they also read it out loud to the survivors and the victims? Yes. And, like, Which, oh, 
that was like really hard for me to like that whole thing yeah. was really hard for me to read and I'm I mean I'm really glad that you know the odd it touched the audience enough to move them to tears and it wasn't just like a formality like they did I forget who the name of the person who had written the speech but yeah like he actually like put the time and effort to really address and not like try to gloss over any of what had happened and you know really claiming responsibility and you know um a Yes, the parchment ordeal did happen, you know, because it could it could have just as easily been yet another appeasement um, Mm -hmm. thing. It wasn't like, we're sorry. Let's go look at these pretty houses now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And for those of you listening, the parchment ordeal um, was there was a group of black community members who were trying to protest and they were not supposed to because court order had been passed saying that they needed a permit, which of course the city would not grant. Yep. Um, So a whole bunch of African-Americans got together and they were going to do it anyway and they were all wrongfully arrested and forced to be in this awful jail crammed together and the KKK, specifically the Silver Dollar Group, gave them all laxatives and left them in there for days with one toilet and no toilet paper and it was just yeah really terrible um so and they like he talks about how like people were traumatized by this Mm -hmm. you know so the public apology and the monument was kind of the community's way of trying to make that right not that you can ever bully you know I would say too, um, like that right. yes, that public apology was a huge first step, but I don't think that should have been the end of it. Oh, I no, definitely right. think that they should have been like recompensated for their trauma. Like mm-hmm. they should have been given more. I think definitely, you know, funded in some way, you know, other than just a monument. Like what about like trauma recovery groups that they could get together and you know yeah, fund yeah. them like that so that they can talk about their issues and feel support after going through that traumatizing ordeal. Yeah. And, you know, just to help them out, too, in their lives while they have much of it left. Yeah. Like, Especially like, for their um, for their kids, too. Yeah. Like, what about their family? They yeah. need help as well. Like we said earlier, um, words are one thing, but it's you, you can only back it up completely with actions. Yeah. Yep. Well, and I think to give this apology and do a monument, like, okay, great, but... You know, like we were talking about, there's still a huge divide when it comes to, you know, your communities, finances, the schools. Like he talks a lot about this huge debate with the schools and how the public schools, you know, like all the white people basically pulled their kids out of public schools. So the public schools are failing and, you know, they are predominantly African-American and they don't get any type of funding And, you know, it's just this huge issue in this town. And it's like, well, why don't you address those things? You know, not that you shouldn't address things in the past and you shouldn't do something about them and talk about them so people can, you know, process them. But there's so many other things, too, like, you know, an apology and monuments and all of these things like that only goes so far when you're still 
perpetuating mm-hmm. this discrimination and this divide. It's symbolic, you know. I I would even go so far as to say as segregation still exists in Natchez. Yeah. If oh, it's yeah. if there are just like African American schools and if they are suffering from funding, well, why aren't African Americans and white kids going to school together? to help matters, to help these two communities to come together so that there isn't such a divide financially and academically as well. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting. He said that there's a group called Mission Mississippi, and it's a religious group of all different races, and they get together to basically openly talk about race. And they also talk about faith and stuff. It's a religious group. But I just thought that was really kind of a cool concept you know like I think that would be very beneficial in lots of different places for most people right to have some place where you could come because I feel like people don't want to talk about it you know it's can be an uncomfortable I think people feel uncomfortable sometimes I think people don't know what to say I think Mm -hmm. people you know don't want to offend accidentally Mm -hmm. or purpose I mean I guess if you want to do it purposely then you don't care but right right (laughs) you know but it's just one of those things so like it's just not talked about when it needs to be mm-hmm. yeah needs to be talked about yeah i think you know that religious group is good like because it they the members are meeting and they already have a common interest they already have a common lifestyle they worship um and they are christians so let's have that kind of be like the bridge to bring people together and actually start talking about um, the serious social issues. But, like, I do think that there also needs to be a secular group, too, just because, like, well, you know, we still need to understand that this is just, like, social issues that go on um, in these communities that need to be solved together without needing that, without re- needing the religious aspects or side to it. Yeah. Like, you know, you shouldn't need God to understand that you need to treat your neighbor better. Right. I mean, there were literally Christians back then who were like, yeah, I'm such a good Christian. But then they turn around and they and they have slaves um, working their plantations. Right. So, you know, like we need all of the angles possible Mm -hmm. to bring people together and have these discussions. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the whole, you know, like we've talked a little bit already about like the garden clubs. But you know and just like the pageant and pilgrimage and all of this it's like a tradition in this town but it's not like they're not addressing the real issues Mm -hmm. you know and like you can't feel one way about you know racism and discrimination and you know be like oh this is terrible but then go and dress up in a hoop skirt or a Confederate uniform and like parade around with the you know Confederate flag. I think he said in the book that they took that out. Yeah, um, there was they a, used to sing a, Dixie something. Yeah, they used a different flag, which was still, but wasn't it still <laughs> yeah. like a yeah. Confederate, so, like some yeah. sort of Southern? I, I yeah. actually remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, flag. I don't remember what it was exactly, but. I don't know. It's just very... I do think the author does a really good job in the book of kind of showing you how there is this, like, pull back and forth. It's like you have a lot of people, specifically the white people who are descendants of these plantation owners who live in these antebellum homes, who are like, you know, yes, we want to address slavery more. We want to address black history more. And we're trying to do that. 
but we're still going to like have all of these old traditions and all of these things that are keeping the Southern legacy and the slaveholding legacy going, yeah. but we're just going to try and incorporate like an African-American element into it. Like, I don't think that's the way, I mean, I don't think that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. I'm not them, but I just don't see how that because there is the understanding that, you know, the traditional Southern hospitality and fantasy is the status quo, and they don't want to do away with that completely because then it would be giving African Americans more power over them. And, you know, in white people's minds, it's kind of like, well, we don't, we want to keep African Americans where they are because that's how we continue to have more power and have more benefits than the other group. We don't want to even out the playing field here. Yeah. I think. So back to the flag real quick. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Um, Said, but instead of the Confederate battle flag, um, they used the Bonnie Blue flag of secession. And it says this flag was also a symbol of white supremacy and Confederate determination to keep blacks enslaved, but it had the advantage of being obscure. Which is... So basically, it's just not the prominent Confederate flag. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, it still has this, like, um, you know, like, obscure meaning, but it's at least it's not the Confederate flag. Right. Which just, that is just bizarre. It has that invisibility so people don't call them out on it. So that they can keep it up. So that they can still get away with um, believing in the Confederate culture, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really cool, though, when he talked about Debbie Causey. I don't know if that's how you pronounce her last name. But she runs the Concord House. It was the first African-American house Mm -hmm. in pilgrimage. Like, it used to be a slave quarters. Um, And I thought that was cool. I was like, that's one I would like to go and see, you know. Um, And that she joined the one of the garden clubs and that they basically they weren't going to do the pageant anymore they were going to have what they call it a royal evening and they're not going to wear confederate uniforms the so confederate like, uniforms it's just that's such a it's so weird they want it so bad they, they want to keep wearing it so bad I know. and it's such a like they see it as just such a rich tradition and like but it's just not good <laughs> That's the only way that I can describe it <laughs> right now. Good. It's not good. Just I feel like it would be do it. fascinating to talk to Debbie, though, because I feel like as a black woman who is like running the first, you know, African-American site in pilgrimage and who is now a part of like the garden club that's trying to be a little bit more progressive, I mm-hmm. guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Quote unquote progressive. Right. Yes. Because um, there's Within two the confines of the other garden clubs being like, well, you still need to conform to um, our precedent that we have set. Right. For in in comparison, clubs. I guess they're. I would just love to see like what she thinks. Yeah. Like especially now, I don't know when. I can't remember when the book was written or like how long she's been running this house of like doing pilgrimage, but like what people like think and like how many people come to that house compared to the other yes. antebellum. I was going to say, I would like to know the actual comparisons because he, you know, I, I would like, I just think it'd be interesting to 
see the comparison, like you said, between the actual, you know, black history sites versus the, you know, antebellum homes. Because we don't really know if we're getting, like, the most accurate um, view of it. But, yeah, I would, I would love to see what she would have to say about it.